legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. My guest today is Brian Francis Culkin. Even by 21st century standards, 2020 has been a tumultuous year. To mounting economic, social and political problems was added the coronavirus crisis, the response to which has inflicted widespread economic devastation, huge social disruption and untold human misery, all of which exposes the hollowed-out core of our collective culture, whose saturation in media and technology and slavish devotion to scientism is arguably now doing more harm than good. Identity politics, cancel culture, and even the pandemic itself have been politicised and weaponized, functioning as cover for technocratic agendas, distractions from more pressing real-world problems, and blinding us from the deeper psycho-spiritual causes of our current malaise. Hello and welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you for having me. Uh, today, Brian, we're going to, we find ourselves here at the end of 2020, a tumultuous year by anybody's standards, possibly the most tumultuous year that any of us currently alive have lived through. Before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, if you could tell people a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a writer and a film director and I guess a, a cultural theorist, you could say. And I've written a, a series of books. Um, I've written 13 books, with a few more coming out next year as well. And I've directed three films. And um, my, my interest, I guess, lies um, uh, in the intersection of uh, technology, capitalism, spirituality, and uh, globalization, a, a kind of analyzing um, the different structures and forms that um, that we are seeing um, in in the context of 21st century globalization and how that affects and how that affects our consciousness and our and our day-to-day life really obviously two of the biggest events uh, of this year the two biggest events of this year uh, the pandemic which we're currently navigating our way through or trying to and the u.s election and you don't have to be interested in politics or pay any attention to politics to understand why that was so important but uh, here in the UK, we're also attempting to navigate our way through the back end of Brexit, which, of course, was the the UK's decision to depart the European Union. Now, all of these tumultuous events uh, that have been read very differently by different commentators, but I see them all intimately interconnected, and I think you do as well. And I also see mm-hmm. these. I see these as symptoms of a deeper malaise sure absolutely i mean i would i would agree with that um 
with with what you're saying that there's an interconnected feature between certainly in, in terms of the Trump phenomenon in American politics and Brexit, um, and then also how even though something like COVID was a was a biological event, it spontaneously emerged in in the Chinese city of Wuhan. It is related, uh, um, ver- very much so, to um, you know it. It might not be, be be related in and of itself as a biological event, but it became related in the way that um, different um, in the way our our political thinking responded to it. So there there's definitely um, a, a tapestry that's being weaved between these three moments or or, or, or structures that you just mentioned, um, amidst other ones as well. Now, what inspired our chat was um, obviously a reader of your um, online posts, your your blogging, and you're uh, currently putting together a new collection of those uh, spontaneous reflections too, which is going to you know build on your your previous volume there. And one thing that interested me very much, particularly this year with the pandemic, was you talking about. Um, a cultural immune system. Of course, there's a lot of talk about immune system with, you know, the biological specifics of the pandemic. But uh, perhaps you could say what you mean by a cultural immune system. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the idea of immune system um, works on two different levels. The first is most certainly the on the biological level, and in a very simple way, people who have healthy immune systems or robust immune systems. They have the capacity or the ability to keep out foreign agents, such as bacteria, virus, um, parasites. And when such agents do infiltrate the body, they have the capacity to, you know, be sick for a little while and, and eventually expel those agents from the organism. And, you know, a weak, someone who's, um, who's compromised, who has a, a, an immune system that is compromised, of course, they have to be very careful because they're unable um, their immune system is really unable to protect um, foreign entities coming in and invading, you know, the cells and molecules of their own body. So the immune system conceptually is is a is an apparatus or some kind of form that says this can come in, this can't come in. And when you transpose that idea onto a culture, you know, all cultures, you would think to be healthy should have a, a cultural immune system. And, and you certainly see this in indigenous cultures. And I think to a point you saw this in Western European cultures up until recently, where there were certain things that were allowed in public space and, and certain things that weren't. And I think with the advent of 21st century capitalist globalization, which is totally linked to the unbelievable array, very powerful computational technologies that have emerged from places like Silicon Valley, the, the cultural immune system of America has been shattered. I mean, we're, we're unable to protect children from pornography. We're unable to protect um, um, ourselves from all kinds of misinformation and terrible ideas and bad actors infiltrating our public space. And one of the things that I was noticing about the political response to the COVID-19 crisis was that it was absolutely focused on our individual biological immune systems. It wasn't even like, even when people were talking about public health, I always felt that it was very self-centered and really focused on the individual. But what there was zero talk about was 
the cultural immune system and how you know we are living in, I, I can speak for america I, I can't entirely speak for england but i think they're they're similar in many ways is that we are living in a situation where the the cultural immune system of america has been completely shattered we have no way to protect ourselves from you know viral videos and memes and and all these things that are invading the collective or social brain of american society and of course this is causing all kinds of problems from you know depression and anxiety to more extreme psychopathologies like bipolar syndrome so and you know uh, a very interesting thinker for me was the um, french anthropologist rene girard who's written a lot about plagues and um and what what he says is like these things are intimately linked that if you have a strong cultural immune system then you're much less likely to allow a biological plague to enter into public space and and affect individuals and on the contrary if your cultural immune system is completely broken down in the sense that you know foreign invaders can come in and and in our era technological incursion can just come into any home that you know you think about the average um family dynamic today you have you know four people sitting around a table all looking at their smartphones with different information coming in i mean a, a dynamic like that is inherently unhealthy in the sense that all this kind of um technological bacteria and technological parasites can infiltrate not only the family home but cultural space at large and when we live in an environment like that then yes something like covid has a much better chance to come into a a social dynamic like that and do real damage and and i think that's one of the lessons of covid-19 is that um the cultural um protective mechanisms of that have been obliterated by the globalization process it has allowed a a biological plague a biological virus like covid-19 that really i mean i don't want to downplay the the potential problems of covid-19 because people are dying and people are getting sick but at the same time you know it's it's a it's a 1% death rate or something like that so it's you know we're not dealing with a bubonic plague or ebola you know we're dealing with a particularly strong pneumonia basically but still it's been able to come in and just cause unbelievable chaos and havoc and hysteria and and these really um non-optimal political responses so i i think that's what i was trying to get at is that not only is there such a thing as a cultural immune system right because the, the biological immune system is a real thing it's a it's a material entity whereas in in the sense that it, it can be verified its presence can be verified by science whereas a cultural immune system is more of a concept it's a kind of like a platonic form it's an idea but it's there though it's real and i think that we only talk about our biological immune system and the reason why we don't talk about our cultural immune system is because part of the logic of capitalist globalization it has turned us all into like private consumers where there is no real intersubjective matrix of communal life anymore we we've, we've been reduced to ourselves and our technological output and our productive capacities and that's it and i think you know covid-19 i mean it it doesn't if anything this this kind of pervasive selfishness seems to be getting worse but i think that um if there was any kind of 
um, message, you could say, or kind of higher spiritual vibratory message of COVID-19. It's to rediscover that cultural immune system, our shared social space, and our codependence on one another as, as human beings. Yes, I think it's so interesting what you say. And I think if you attempt to approach uh, what's happening with the pandemic on a purely five sense materialistic level, you, you will never get to grips with it. Cannot it, it be, exactly. It cannot exactly. be fully, fully understood on that level. No. And I think that uh, you pointed out about the, you know, the, the actual uh, reality of it in terms of uh, infection and death rates and how we've seen so much worse in the past. And I think that a societies or global society differently orientated, more balanced, would see this thing off in short order. It would be dealt, oh, yes. with, dealt with very differently. And I think that we, I spoke earlier about the U.S. election, you know, about how the divisions in U.S. society and the divisions here uh, in the U.K. And, and around Europe, actually, yeah, divisions in the U.K. revealed by Brexit, divisions in Europe between North and South revealed in recent years uh, in currency crises and what have you. And I think that the cohesion of society will tell you a lot about how it meets a crisis. And it seems to me that and it, even those of us who were uh, observing U.S social and political culture and um you know a bit dismayed by what we saw even we were taken aback by how poorly prepared the u.s was to meet the challenges um sure. of, of the pandemic because sure you know this is like the leader of the free world and I, I, you know the most advanced nation i i don't think so so even i was like wow i, I can't believe the fracturing and the disintegration taking place yeah it was and you know one of the one of the many problems in contemporary american society is that society itself has become privatized so if this were to happen let's say in the 1960s and 1970s there would there would have been a much more coherent robust public response whereas today a, a lot of the governmental functions of american society have been privatized by corporations and technological power so, and, and, and because a lot of that has happened over the past 20 to 30 years, and we really haven't dealt with a, with a pandemic like this, the response has been very fragmented and disorganized. And, and also, too, there is something about the, the American media apparatus that takes this kind of um, what, in, in psychoanalytic terminology, it's called jouissance. It's like this surplus enjoyment, this kind of perverted enjoyment in making America look bad. I mean, when you look at the, the major news stations of America, like CNN and NBC and ABC, I mean, they almost took pleasure, excuse, excuse me, they almost took enjoyment in uh, kind of um, highlighting how bad America was doing. It, it, it was a bizarre thing. Um, and I think that you know, uh, yes, America did not do great. However, the American testing apparatus was unbelievable. And so many, I mean, so many of the cases that America is reporting on a daily basis, you know, 250,000 cases a day, a large majority of those, and we don't even know for sure, are completely asymptomatic people. So I, and you know, and then of course, the hysterical nature of the of both the media, the traditional media, coupled with the social media ecology. I mean, it, it gives it this kind of hysterical nature where everything is, um, 
is uh, presented and to, 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 to display the absolute shock value. So this isn't necessarily the, the down. I mean, yes, to agree with you, the American response was not good. Uh, President Trump's response was not good. But also there's a whole meteor ecology beneath that and the entire and the also the environment that has been created by these network technologies of how we interact with one another that inherently makes the situation worse. It makes the situation more frantic and manic and discombobulated. So again, we're dealing with plagues on different levels. We're dealing with a biological plague in the form of COVID-19. We're dealing with a technological plague in terms of surplus technology applied to the human nervous system. And then we're also dealing with a, a plague of information and, and, and a plague of depression and, and all these different plagues that are that seem to... Uh, 2020 was the year when they all kind of linked together and, and caused a real planetary crisis. Yeah, you mentioned a few moments ago uh, something about indigenous societies and one thing that they even those that still exist today in any meaningful form seem to have is a way of seeing clearly um that, that we seem to have lost to be able to judge something and be but of course we're discouraged from doing that now you know you can't call a spade a spade i don't know if you have that expression in yes. the u.s but we sure. have it here you know it's like just sure 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 say what sure. you say what you see sure and also, that I think, I don't know if you've written about this, but the concept of evil, I think that our dismissal of that in, in, in postmodern times has been quite disastrous. And I think it's one thing that indigenous societies were able to see, to call it out, to judge it, to, to know how to deal with it, to dis dispatch it. Uh, but that's also, I mean, I think that what defines... In, you know, and again, I live in the Peru, in the Peruvian Amazon in the city of Aquito, so I'm I'm kind of surrounded by many different in, in indigenous cultures, and I've personally learned a lot from lot from them just just being down there. And I I think one of the things that defines an indigenous culture is a kind of a symbolic coherence, and um in 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 the sense that there's a certain lens by which you're viewing social reality, and that gives a consistency to how people approach the world. But in terms of evil, I mean, I don't think it's just indigenous culture. I mean, I would definitely argue that the entire history of Western Christianity up until recently has always been in touch with this idea that there there is evil in the world. I mean, C.S. Lewis once said that we're living in enemy-occupied territory. And I think recently, with, as you correctly say, with the rise of post-modernity and contemporary hyper-modernity, um, we have lost that idea of evil, that there is evil in the world. And, um, and, you know, what, you know, in many ways, and one of the things that I've written about is that the, the whole discourse of politically correct or what it's called now is woke, uh, woke discourse is in many ways a, a, a de-Christianized Christianity. It's, it's, it's Christianity in the sense that, you know, the, the key anthropological insight of christianity is a defense of the victim it's defense and that of course is is christ and christ symbolizes the victim who's in who's being taken over by the crowd and um woke terminology and politically correct discourse it's it is a defense of the victim but it's not so much to defend the 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 dignity of the victim it's to kind of make us all into victims so it's this kind of perverted Christianity that 
that we're seeing emerge as like the key ideological feature of 21st century globalization. And that's something that's very concerning, I think, on, on, in many ways. But I would totally agree with you that one of the features of, um, of, of post-modernity or hyper-modernity is without question this kind of a disregarded evil. Well, the whole woke cancel culture thing, again, is that feeds what I was mentioning a moment ago about not being able to, to name what you see. You can't call something what it is. Sure. Developing that thought further, I see it as, if, if not com completely, certainly the opportunity for a vast distraction from what I would call actual problems, if you see what I mean. So like Jordan Peterson has spoken about this and been shot down in flames for it. Anything we can do to ninny and obsess about gender fluid toilets or something, you know, anything whatsoever, sure, 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 rather sure. than face what's coming at us. Yes, but that's, but that's precisely why, um, wokeness or, or PC discourse has become the theological, um, accompaniment of, of global capitalism. This is why all of the major corporations and all of the major media outlets and, and, and the whole ecology of, of celebrities that are immersed, um, within that matrix, they're all woke. They're, they're all ultra PC because it diverts our attention from this monstrous abstraction that is coming towards us very, very quickly. Um, so yes, I would agree with that as well. There was a very interesting post that you did. I can't remember exactly when it was during the last year, um, about the, you know, the whole, uh, around the protests, you know, the Black Lives Matter, but also the, the cancel culture tearing down of, of statues and vandalizing of heritage sites, uh, whatever, whatever you think about the past, you know, like, look, bad shit happened. It continually does. You know, the, the history isn't black and white, but you made a point about the future, Microsoft and Apple. And their business practices and how statues of, you know, Steve Jobs or, you know, Bill sure, Gates sure, or sure, whatever, sure, you know, sure. I, I, I did. Sure, sure, sure. I enjoyed that. Reflection. I remember that. Mm. I remember that post. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just this idea of there is tremendous disturbance, psychological, economic, symbolic in the world today. And I think that one of the things that we tend to do, and this is normal, I don't think it makes somebody a bad person, but is that we tend to look for scapegoats of why this has happened. And certainly with the emergence of these mass protests over the summer of 2020 following the, the really horrific and horrifying murder of George Floyd was this scapegoating of the past. It's like, you know, this is all there because of white privilege and certain historical figures that have made it like this. And that might be true, right? Like there, there is no doubt that a country like America has this really horrific history of racism that is there. It has, it, it has had a very detrimental effect on the African American soul and, and individual lives. There is no doubt about that. But the point that I was getting at is that when we try to blame the past entirely, what we tend to overlook is the present. And I think that, you know, and if we keep going in this direction, we could easily imagine in the year, you know, 2200 or 2300, people tearing down the statues of Bill Gates or people tearing down the statues of Jeff's, uh, of uh, Jeff Bezos. Because, you know, when you look at 
um, or or Apple, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, St- Steve Jobs o- almost has a saint-like figure in terms of the globalization matrix, right? When he died, it was like a saint was dying. But, you know, when people look back on Apple's business practices and their, you know, their use of borderline slave labor in Chinese factories, that's going to raise a lot of questions. So I think that what we tend to do is we tend to scapegoat the past. And I believe in that post, I used an analogy from the, from a, a, a gospel a dialogue that Christ had with the Pharisees to kind of illustrate that point. Um, but, but yeah. And so we have to, yes, be, uh, I mean, we have to be aware of the past and we have to be historically literate, but we also have to be aware of the present and see how we're reproducing systems of, of injustice and under a different guise. And, and that's what I think when, when, when woke or whatever you want to call it, politically correct discourse becomes obsessed with past systems of oppression and, and past figures of oppression without looking at their own participation in contemporary systems of oppression. Um, that's problematic to me. Well, I spent many years, um, in fact, it's only in the last couple of years that I withdrew from it for various reasons. I spent many, many years as a, a cultural critic, specifically a music critic. And I noticed towards the end of the 1990s this trend towards uh, recycling the past, basically. And I naively thought, well, you know, it's the year 2000, and when we get into 21st century, you know, maybe we'll, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, uh, as there historically always has been with the approach of a new millennium. Maybe when we get into the 21st century, uh, we can move on from this and we'll see some new cultural forms emerging and uh, we won't be just churning through the past quite, quite so much. And then to my horror, what actually happened post. It's gotten much worse. Yes, exactly, exactly. Much worse. And I don't know if I mentioned, uh, Simon Reynolds to you and his book Retromania, but that's a very good, uh, go to if anybody wants to, you know, just remind themselves sure. of, of what we've all been all been doing in the last few years sure 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 sure. uh, and you had a post about 1980s music in malls which again it really resonated with me and i enjoyed very much and the point of all this is it's a symptom you know that we're we're looking to the past for a reason because the future at best appears to be opaque yeah i mean and i think another really uh lucid example of that was about a month ago there was a fight between Mike Tyson and Roy, and Roy Jones Jr. I mean, these were fighters in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, I mean, and you know, when you think about that, it's, it's, you know, in, in the 1980s, you never would have staged a fight between, you know, Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali or something like that, because they were from the past. They were from their era and, and they were fighters in the present fighting in their era. And I think when you look at the, the remakes of so many movies and so many television shows that that is speaking to an existential crisis that we're unable to develop new cultural forms. We're unable to re to produce a future where we're kind of uh, colonizing the past to prop ourselves up. But that, what that speaks to is, is, is a really is a disintegrating culture where we're using the past to prop ourselves up from really collapsing. And, this is happening in sport, it's happening in cinema, it's happening in television, it's happening in music, and it, it absolutely speaks to a crisis of 
the, I guess you could say the soul of society in the sense that it's unable to produce a vision for the future. And, and a lot of that, I, I think, has to do with the new temporality of computational time. Um, um, I, I think in a very simple way, you could say that, that history has been set in three different temporal models. The first we could call like the agricultural or the indigenous model, when time is experienced as a cosmic rhythm, you know, the, the passage of the, the cycles of the moon, the seasons, the movement of the sun across the sky. And, and that was in place really from the earliest human cultures up until from, you know, like the enlightenment to the rise of industrialization. So it, it began to, to shift between the 17th and 19th centuries. And then you get this new temporal model, which is based upon clocks and railway tables. And it's just, it's, it's, it's moving away from the natural rhythms of the biosphere into mechanical clocks and the standardization of time. And then, in the 1990s, we come into this new temporality, which we could call digital time, which where 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 like our sense of time, whether we are conscious of it or not, is not. It's certainly not governed. Certainly not governed by the you know a, a cosmic rhythm or natural cycles. But at the same time, it's not really governed by clocks anymore. It's governed by the internal movement of what we call real time, of computational time, and that is creating a a crisis in our experience. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about today is like no one has any time for anything. Where did all of it go? You know what I mean? Like where did all of the time go? And it seems to me as if like the time is being sucked out of our lives and it's being held in computer servers and in our smartphones. And I think that's part of the reason why, why there's like a temporal distortion in the sense that we really can't face the future. And I think that's part of the reason, coupled with the social collapse that, that's happening, the social decomposition of why we're going into the past and really almost colonizing the past. I mean, these kind of ridiculous rip-off movies that we're doing and television shows, I mean, it just speaks to a, a culture that is in the process of slowly decomposing or, or, or rapidly de de decomposing. Well, yeah, just from a personal point of view, thinking about the movie remakes, I mean, are any of them ever better than the original? You know, Never. How, however you want to Never. judge that. The only, the only one that springs to mind was that um, I think John Carpenter's The Thing uh, was more fully realized than um, you know, the earlier black and white movie. But um, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's very, very few. So it's recycling, but each iteration is degraded. You know, in the way that information, you know, copied from format sure, to format, sure, 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 sure. gradually sure. decays. You know that the 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 resolution is is lost over time. Uh, so a, lot, a bit like um, speaking as someone who used to be a fan of uh, you know record decks and uh, you know hi-fi separates, you know, or a good amplifier, good speakers, um, good cassette deck. Remember cassette decks, and now you have young people downloading their music from especially if it's uh, illegal sources, what's the resolution of that audio file? But it doesn't matter, you know, because what, what do you compare that to? You know, that's what gets lost, I think, sometimes in these questions is like, how would you determine if something is degraded if you've got nothing to compare it to? Um, sure, 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 sure. Yes, I, w I, would, I would agree with that. And that's, you know, the, the whole world is becoming a simulated copy of itself. And um, everything is being put into technological circulation, which is killing the very idea of originality. I mean, now 
it's like you only exist if you can be replicated, if your image or what you have produced can be put into technological circulation. So that that is another feature of 21st century globalization and the horizon of um, of, of neoliberal technologies. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.